Thanks so much for joining me today, Liz. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. If you wouldn't mind just taking a few minutes to introduce yourself to our listeners. My name is Lise Morton, and I am the Vice President of Site Selection for Nuclear Waste Management Organization. And actually, before we even start, if you don't mind, Sheila, I'd love to do a land acknowledgement. So I just want to acknowledge that I'm coming to you today from Bruce County, uh, which is within the traditional territory of Saugeen Ojibwe Nation. And as many around here would know, Saugeen Ojibwe Nation is made up of both the Chippewas of Nawash Unseated, or many people in this area would know that as the Cape Croker area or Neashinaming, um, and also Saugeen First Nation, um, which is, you know, more along Highway 21 towards uh, and on all the way to uh, Sauble Beach. And I also want to recognize the Métis people living in the area. Thank you so much for that. Uh, this question has come up quite a bit. What exactly is the vice president of site selection? Like, what exactly is your role? So my role is to work with communities in both siting areas, in both uh, the Ignace or and Wabagoon Lake Treaty 3 area up north, and also the area around South Bruce and uh, Saugeen Ojibwe Nation. So my role is to make sure that we're doing uh, appropriate engagement uh, with the communities and working with the communities and community leaders towards making this decision, eventual decision for site selection. So I have teams working in both siting areas in Ignace and South Bruce, and also teams working with Indigenous communities throughout the area as, as well. And there's a lot of work going on there, I'm sure. There is. <laughs> What's a bit of your background? What did you do before um, you worked for the NWMO? Well, I think many people know, at least from a career perspective, my background. I worked for Ontario Power Generation, or actually Ontario Hydro originally. Um, I started at Ontario Hydro at the Bruce site back in 1990 as a junior engineer. And I was the system engineer at Bruce A for the uh, emergency coolant injection system for many years, for about, I think, nine or 10 years. And then um, I moved over to, at the time, the nuclear waste department, which was still part of, a, of Ontario Hydro or, or OPG at the time. And I, and I did that because I was interested in getting into what I saw as the environmental side of the industry. Um, and so then when I moved over to nuclear waste, I was the system engineer there for several years um, for the radioactive waste incinerator, the old one, and then the new one that was <laughs> installed back in 2002, um, and for several building systems over at the waste volume reduction building. And then I eventually moved into uh, operations and maintenance, and I was the section manager for the low and intermediate level waste facility for several years. Then I moved over and I was the manager for the Western Use Fuel Dry Storage Facility. So the facility that does the dry storage processing of the fuel that we're talking about here. And then I eventually moved into the director position and, and, uh, and then I was the vice president for the nuclear waste management division for all of OPG. So that included not just the Western waste management facility, which is at the Bruce site, but also the Pickering waste management facility, the Darlington waste management facility, the transportation organization as well for radioactive materials transportation. And I was also accountable for, uh, in my last several years, for um, OPG's DGR project as well. So that's kind of my career history. And I retired from OPG earlier this year, and then I moved over to Nuclear Waste Management Organization. But I've, I've lived in Bruce County now for, I guess, over, over 30 years, I think 32 years or something like that, raised our children here and uh, continue to live here. Sudbury, from Sudbury originally, I always throw that in there, but uh, that's a bit of my background. So you're well-versed in nuclear waste is what you're telling me. 
Yeah, I would say in a lot of areas, you know, yeah, I've, I've made a career of it. I've, I have a passion for, uh, for that end of the industry and certainly have a lot of operational experience in terms of, of what it looks like and, and how you operate a nuclear waste facility. Okay, so can you give us a bit of insight on what it was like to operate a waste facility? Yeah, sure. I'll answer it from a couple of perspectives. So certainly at the vice president level, when I was doing that work, and even when I was a director and a manager, I was the one accountable for those CNSC licenses. Uh, so again, in, in the latter part of my, of my work there, I was accountable for actually four CNSC licenses, but three in particular for the Pickering, Darlington and Western sites. So, you know, I think what, what people need to understand is when you're the person accountable for those licenses, I mean, you have legal requirements under those licenses that have to be met. You know, there are a lot of requirements under those licenses. They're very stringent and you need to be doing a lot of uh, monitoring. So we, uh, at the Western facility, there were, you know, several operators just simply dedicated to monitoring. Uh, and I mean, sampling of, of wells, groundwater systems, of structures, et cetera. So there's a lot of monitoring requirements. Um, there is an extensive preventative maintenance program around any operating waste facility. So you're always doing preventative maintenance on all of the systems and the structures. Um, and I think in particular, you know, fire systems, for example, there's an extensive amount of work that goes, uh, goes into a nuclear waste facility on doing fire, fire preventative maintenance. And then there's also very high reporting requirements as well. So you have to report to the regulator quarterly, and then you also have an annual public reporting that has to happen. Um, and eventually you also need to re- redo those licenses every, uh, every so many years, whatever the, the license period is. So there's a lot of, I'd say, rigor and work that goes into it that people may not see. But I guess the other piece I would just speak to, so that's kind of more at a high level, but you know, the other piece I would just speak to is the day-to-day operation of a, of a nuclear waste facility, because of all those requirements in a license, is something that's done with a lot of rigor and procedure. This is a very procedurally driven operation. And so, uh, and similar to, you know, anybody that, that's used to working in a nuclear plant, there's a lot of the same processes, actually the identical processes for things like pre-job briefings. So every, you know, every day supervisors have to do pre-job briefings with their staff, go over the tasks that they're, they're going to perform, you know, anticipate any hazards, have all the backout conditions. I mean, it's quite rigorous in terms of what they have to do to prepare for the work every day. And, you know, workers are trained in a lot of the same event-free tools that you would hear about in a nuclear station, like two-minute drills and, and different things. So, you know, I think if I was to kind of try to paint the picture for people, I would just say that, you know, when you're working in a nuclear waste facility day in and day out, you know, you get very used to and there's constant monitoring of these processes to make sure that you're following the procedures and the processes that are put in place and that are required under the license. So kind of a often left field question that's not really what I planned on talking about just yet. But while we're on the topic, do you see the storage solution that we use right now being viable forever? We hear this conversation about rolling stewardship and how it's a better option. And as someone who's worked literally in a rolling stewardship facility, essentially, do you see that being viable forever? Well, I mean, I guess I'll just kind of try to explain it from this perspective, which is that, um, so, and I'll talk about the fuel specifically, because there are different types of waste, but, but let's, for, for today's discussion, talk about the fuel. So I think many people would know, and you can see pictures online of the fuel being stored in these big Within the OPG system, Point LaPro and John T have different storage systems, but within the OPG and Bruce Power systems, the fuel is stored in these really big, heavy dry storage containers or casks that have very thick, high density concrete and reinforced steel um, shells. And the design life for those 
containers is, is 50 years. Some of the earliest fuel that's gone into them would be the Pickering Station. I believe they started loading fuel in 1996, if I remember correctly. Now, these containers are very, very well-maintained, well-controlled buildings, uh, keeping them out of the weather, et cetera. So with good maintenance, I'm assuming that engineers would be able to extend that design line. But what I try to explain to people is that it still means that every, whatever that number may be, whatever the, the engineers end up analyzing it to, and whatever the CNSC would approve, just to be clear, to extend the design life of those containers, the CNSC will have to approve that. So let's just assume for today's purposes, and I'm not saying this is the number, but let's just assume it would be, you could extend the life to 100 years, 125, whatever the number is. It means that every 100 or 125 years, the fuel would still have to be removed from those containers and moved into new containers. And then every 100 or 125, or again, whatever the number is, you'd have to do that again. And so just to be really clear, Lise, the 100 or 125 years that we're talking about here is purely hypothetical. That number could be much lower or higher, depending on what engineers consider to be appropriate and what the CNSC will approve. I just don't want anyone, you know, taking that number and using it as gospel. Absolutely. So my concern in terms of, is it a viable solution? It is a viable solution still for several years. But at some point, though, it means that society has to be in a position, you have to continue to have the societal structures, the know-how and the knowledge, the people that know how to do it, and a regulator that's monitoring it every 100 to 150 years uh, for many, many millennia because of the nature of the material. So while it may be viable for even a couple more decades, if we don't start on a solution now, we could reach a point where now we, you know, we, we really do need to intervene. So, so that's why it's not viable over the kinds of millennia that we're talking about uh, that we need to, to prepare for for this material. Yeah, I think one of my biggest concerns, too, is that if we're ever in a situation where we need a permanent solution, we're not going to have the work done. We're not going to be able to just turn around and say, oh, we need a DGR. Let's build one today. Like, look at how long this process has already taken. And we haven't even got to a point where a community has said yes or we've started digging a hole yet. Like it, it takes so long that, you know, if there's ever some crazy event that requires permanent passive storage, we're not going to be in a situation, it's not going to be the top of the priority list. You know, if society is falling apart, whatever, there's multiple reasons, right? Why we wouldn't be able to maintain it. Well, I'll address that from, from two perspectives, I guess, one looking back and one looking forward. So as you say, the process actually for finding a disposal solution has been going on since the 70s. People have sometimes asked me that, like, why has the industry waited until now to deal with it? Well, that's actually not the case. They, they started looking for solutions in the 70s. And, you know, you can Google it online. There was an environmental assessment done called the Seaborne Panel. It was looking at a proposal that AECL had put forward for uh, burying uh, nuclear waste in the Canadian Shield. And it came back and said, it's technically sound but you haven't demonstrated that you have social acceptability. It's exactly that panel that led to the development of the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. It led to the Nuclear Fuel Waste Act, which is a federal act that said, you know, we know that we need to have an independent organization that's going out and solely looking at this. Uh, So as you say, we've now been, NWMO has now been in existence since 2002. So we're almost at the 20 year mark. And that's simply to be finding potential hosts. 
So to then answer or to speak to the other part about what you're talking about, um, so would we be in a position if we ended up with uh, in an emergency or in a crisis to, to then respond? Well, we've already been at it for several decades and still have not reached the point of, of having a disposal solution in place. And then the other thing I would point out, and I mentioned this earlier, so if the first fuel was put into canisters at, in Pickering in, I, again, I, my, by memory, I believe it's 96, but I could be off by a couple of years there. Then that fuel at 50 years, those containers then start reaching their design life into the 2040s. And so that's why we're preparing right now to, to do all of this so that we have a disposal solution ready for when those first containers start reaching their design lives. To your point, if, if that wasn't to happen um, and it continues to get pushed by decades and decades and decades, then you could reach a point where you need to react quickly, potentially. And, and yes, then you'd have an awful lot of work to be doing um, in a short period of time. So just circling back a little bit to your time at the waste facility, like what kind of experience did you have with their transportation program? I know we get a lot of questions and concerns raised about transportation. And I sometimes wonder if people have this image of a barrel of liquid just rolling down the highway all willy nilly. Mm -hmm. Um, I think people don't really understand, you know, the planning that goes into a nuclear shipment. So can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. And of course, I am speaking to it from, you know, how OPG runs its transportation program. But uh, so I, I can, can give it from that perspective in my past experience. So so yes, I was ultimately accountable for our rad materials transportation program. People often hear rightfully about how, you know, the transportation packages that are used for, for nuclear waste are, are very, you know, very strong packages that are designed as per uh, international standards that have to meet standards by the International Atomic Energy Agency and others. Uh, you know, a lot of testing goes into the containers. You know, these are these are not, and even the tractor trailer uh, combination sets are not necessarily your normal tractor trailer combination. So of course there's all of that and there's significant rigor in terms of the uh, requirements, the regulations around transportation are very significant. So you're not just meeting what's called the PTNSR or the packaging transport regulations from the CNSC. You also have to meet regulations from Transport Canada and from the Ontario Ministry of Transportation. So there, that's kind of all the programmatic elements. But I, I think maybe what I explain to people is that, again, what does it look like day to day to put trucks on the road? So I, I'd highlight a couple other things that are kind of more the operational aspects of it. So first of all, I mentioned earlier how you know, within a nuclear waste facility, you do pre-job briefings with, with workers. Well, it's no different. Every day, the supervisor does pre-job briefings with the truck drivers. Every day, they look at the weather conditions. And the supervisor makes a call every day on whether it's a go, no, go on weather conditions. If there's any question around the weather conditions, and we used to have even requirements in terms of if there were, if there were high winds, you know, we had a certain wind speed at which we wouldn't send the, the, the drivers out. So, you know, drivers are not even out on the road in bad weather conditions. And the trucks are heavily, heavily instrumented so that at any given moment in real time, the supervisor knows exactly where that truck is. They can get all kinds of data on the truck, whether it, it was in hard braking, whether they, it was idling any, any amount of time. I mean, the, the driver and the, the supervisor can be in constant communication partially through that instrumented system, but also through other means as well. So there's a lot of communication and understanding exactly, like I say, where that truck is. And then the drivers themselves 
are trained well beyond a standard truck driver that's maybe driving other commodities around would be would be trained by. So of course they need to understand things like transportation of dangerous goods. But beyond that, I mean they're they need to even before they're hired as a truck driver for an operation such as that, uh, you know, they need to have a clean driver's abstract. Uh, they need to come in with, you know, pretty good records to begin with. And that's monitored throughout their driving history. And so, and then they're even sent on really extensive training, uh, things like tractor trailer skid school. You know, we're not just talking skid school here for cars. We're talking tractor trailer skid school, which I had always wanted to go observe, but I never got an opportunity to do. <laughs> that would be pretty um, cool. It would be pretty, yeah, pretty interesting. And the drivers used to used to really quite enjoy that. But so it's a very rigorously, carefully handled system in terms of keeping drivers on the road every day. And I guess the other part I should also point out is that you also have a system in which before the shipment ever goes out, there's several layers of verification that everything's right with the, with the, the shipment and different people have to sign off on that shipment before it even leaves leaves the station. So there's a lot of rigor around those those shipments for sure. It's something that's often misunderstood. I feel I do feel like I said before, people just think, you know, a truck driver decides to pick up a load of waste today and off they go and they go where they want. <laughs> and I don't think they realize how how rigorous the process is. As someone who works in a nuclear facility, <laughs> I can only imagine the the rigor in planning that goes well, into a waste shipment. Well, and I'll tell you, we, we used to track what we would call preventable collisions. So collisions that the driver could have prevented. And if you look across the transportation industry in general, you'll often, you'll find different numbers, but you'll often find numbers that, you know, different industries will track collisions over a rolling average of kilometers. You know, they'll say, well, so many collisions per whatever million miles or whatever, you'll see different numbers out there. You know, we used to track to an absolute number, which was zero. In other words, there would be no preventable collisions. So if if ever there was one, then it would have been investigated significantly so you could make sure that that didn't happen again. So, you know, you're even kind of monitoring and measuring to, to pretty high standards as well to make sure that, you know, you, you're, you're operating to the utmost highest level of, of the, the transportation industry. If you will. I always like to say to people too, it's not, it's not always either about preventing the accidents, because obviously there are some that aren't preventable. It's about you know, maintaining the integrity of the transport task so that nothing right. negative happens in the event of the accidents that we can't always prevent. Yeah. And I should also, maybe I should point out on, since we're talking about transportation as well, that there's all, there are also significant requirements under something called the transportation emergency response plan, and that's under transport Canada. So the province is divided up into segments, if you will, I'm talking from a nuclear transportation perspective. And so if there ever is any incident, then different nuclear plants or, or stations are the ones that would take the lead. So I, and I, I am going by memory here, so I could be wrong, but so for example, I think uh, the Bruce station would take the lead for anything that goes, I think almost all the way down to Orangeville or something like that. So there's a whole also system that gets kicked in. If ever there's any kind of an incident, again, the driver has numbers to call the driver immediately. And, and again, the, the truck is instrumented. So the supervisor would probably know even before they got a call that something's gone on. But anyway, the driver would enlist a whole pile of, of calls that they would do if there's any kind of an incident. And part of that, depending on the severity of the incident, would trigger this emergency response. And so there would be people deployed from the stations, I think, up towards the Chalk River area. Chalk River, of course, is the one responsible. But, you know, there's a whole transportation response plan that, that has to be in place. Again, under the regulations, it has to be in place. 
it's funny because it was said it was said once I don't remember what medium I saw it or whatever but it was somewhere in the in the DGR conversation someone had said that if there was a transportation incident the closest trained response team is in Texas or something and I was like well that's just not true we have a team in Bruce Power that looks after radiological yeah, there security. Are- yeah, there are trained crews in, in in each of the the power plants, and 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 we have to run. You have to run drills on this. So there mm-hmm. are drills run, and I can't remember the frequency if it's a- annually or not. But there are drills that are run on transportation for exactly that purpose to make sure that local teams are prepared. And and also, um, I don't know if OPG is still doing this or not. I imagine they are. Um, they used to do presentations as well to just first responders along the transportation routes, uh, so that people understood along the transportation routes. What was traveling through the communities and and how they would need to be uh, to respond and what the processes were in place. Just before we switch gears here too much, um, you had mentioned earlier about the NWMO being an independent organization for the fuel, and so some people have said that the board of directors are all people from the industry. How does the NWMO claim that they're independent when the board members are all industry people? That's a great question, and so. I'll, I'll start actually, I guess the best way to, to, to address this is to first talk about the Nuclear Fuel Waste Act a little bit, because, uh, and I talked earlier about how the Seaborne panel happened, and then that kind of brought forward the Nuclear Fuel Waste Act, which then mandated that NWMO would be formed. The act actually specifies that the waste owners or producers in the country must be on the board and must basically form and pay the funds that are required to, to deal with this waste. So it's, it's a requirement under the Act as well to make sure that the, the waste producers are part of the board. A couple other things are also in place. So first of all, they aren't the only people on the board, would be the first thing that I would say. Uh, so the waste producers do have a seat at the board, but there are other members of the board that are independent and that are not, uh, that are not uh, at all uh, related to the waste producers. So I think, and you can go on our website and you can see who's, who's on the board of directors. But um, I think the other thing, though, that's important is that we report still up to ultimately to the Minister of Nat- Natural Resources, to NRCAN. And so NWMO has to table annual reports to NRCAN, which then get tabled to Parliament by, by the Minister of Natural Resources. So there's a requirement to, to report up, again, federally at, at a parliamentary level. And then the other piece I would say as well is that we also, and as mandated under the Nuclear Fuel Waste Act, we also have something called an advisory council. And the whole purpose of this advisory council, again, as per the wording in the act, is to ensure that there's an independent body that is advising and overseeing NWMO and that is keeping the public's interests at heart. That is the purpose of the advisory council. So again, you can uh, take a look on the website and you can see you know, who's on the advisory council. And actually, interestingly enough, and maybe we'll get into this in later questions, is that once we uh, pick a siting community or area, that the community would have to have a seat at the advisory council as well. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, so that's, um, a, that's a given. Yeah. That's good too. I know a lot of people do kind of wonder sometimes, you know, down the road, like what does our participation look like? Mm-hmm. down the road, which we will get into a little bit later. But just before we get into really the the nuts and bolts of site selection. Um, so I've heard a lot of things about your experience internationally mm. to do with repositories or just nuclear waste or the nuclear industry in general. So if you could just speak to that a little bit, that would be awesome. Well, I guess I'd say a couple things. So I, um, I've certainly participated with the International Atomic Energy Agency many times over the years. I think it's at least seven or eight times. 
uh, in a couple different capacities, sometimes in what they would call technical committees or consultation committees. And, and, and uh, in those cases, you're sometimes working towards publishing a, docu a document with the IAEA. So I've been involved in a couple of those. Uh, one specific around things like incineration and, and, and heat treatment. And then also, though, I've participated several times in the, it's a long name, uh, Joint Convention on the Safety of Spent Fuel and Radioactive Waste Management, I believe is what it is. That is a long name. Yeah. It's, it, so I've gone to the Joint Convention several times. That So just what that is, is Canada is a signatory on what's called a Joint Convention. Because the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, is uh, an arm of the UN, the United Nations. So countries sign on to this. So we've signed on to the joint convention. And as a result of that, we have an obligation every three years as a country to, to participate in this joint convention, which involves disclosing, and it's, again, available on, I, I believe, on NRCAN's website, I believe on the CNSC's website, disclosing all of our radioactive waste inventories, um, kind of all of our plans for, for what we're planning to do. So I, I participated in the IAEA several times. But I guess the other thing, too, is I, I've certainly visited several waste facilities over the years. So I've been to the WIP facility in New Mexico that you often hear people talking about, went there, uh, that's been about a decade or so now since I was there. Uh, went to another place called Waste Control Specialists. I think it's still called that in Texas. It's gone through maybe a name change. It's more of a shallow disposal site. So a different technology, if you will, than a deep disposal facility. Been to several waste handling facilities as well around the world. And I did go to Chernobyl as well. They wanted some international support. They are moving fuel from the non-accident units. Uh, so just for people to understand, after the accident happened, three other reactor units continued to operate for many other years. It was a four unit station, just like a Bruce A or a Bruce B. And the other three reactors continued to operate, but they've all been since shut down. And so that fuel also all needs to get moved similar to what, what we've done in Canada from wet storage into dry storage. So they were looking for some expertise in terms of operational expertise on how you do dry storage of fuel. So I also went there a few years ago. That's really cool. Chernobyl, as weird as it sounds to people who aren't into nuclear, is on my list of places to go. I've heard some really cool stories from people who've gone. It sounds super weird, I know, but it's on my list. I remember this document that would go around the office at Bruce a that, that you would read in terms of a detailed kind of account of the, of the accident. So it was certainly something you learned about and read about early on. And I've, many, I've read many books and tried to really study it and make sure I understood it. But I will say it's a humbling experience. You know, I think you need to approach it with, um, with a sense of, you know, just humility in terms of, of, of course, what happened there. But there are still 2000 people that work at that site. It's an active site that, uh, you know, they're doing decommissioning of the plant. Uh, there's a lot of learnings to be had there. It is strange, in my opinion, that it's become a tourist attraction. It's a very big tourist attraction in the Ukraine. Um, and so, you know, they have tours running all the time, um, both to the Chernobyl site itself and to Pripyat, which is the town that was evacuated. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a learning and it's a, it's a good place to, to really understand and learn and, and, and understand how, how we could prevent that from happening elsewhere. And of course, there's a whole pile of reasons we could get into that as to why, why that, that wouldn't happen here and certainly not with the DGR, but that would be a whole different podcast. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a whole nother one. Right. But I will do someday, but not yet. 